We're going to be in 1 Corinthians this evening, chapter 1. One of the things to remember at any time that we come to Scripture, uh, any Scripture that we read is, uh, because it's so long ago, some 2,000 plus to the beginning of time, years ago, it's easy for us to think um, or not remember that these were real-life circumstances happening and taking place, real cultures, the letters and everything that was written uh, were written into real circumstances. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to kind of forget that or to think it's kind of a, a storybook that we're reading and not realize that this was real life that was happening and uh, there was real things being addressed. So just as we jump into the passage this evening, I've got a, uh, a brief kind of summary or synopsis of, of the culture of the city of Corinth uh, at the time to which Paul, the Apostle Paul, was writing into. Few cities had, have ever had or will ever have such a reputation, a city filled with hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about one of the largest, most beautiful, modern, and industrious cities ever known to man. This city was Corinth, otherwise known as Sin City, This city was a city that flourished in New Testament times. About 146 years before Jesus Christ was born, the city of Corinth was looted and destroyed by the Romans. The men of Corinth were brutally slaughtered, and its women and children were sold into slavery. The entire city was torched, and it lay in virtual ruin for almost a century. But then, about 46 BC, the new Corinth rose from the ashes. Julius Caesar rebuilt the city, and it became a seat of government for a, for a province of Rome. One can see why Corinth was so important. The city of Corinth had three harbors and was strategically located along a prominent north-south trade route. It was a place of commercial trade where merchants from all over the world would come. One of the most strategic locations in the Roman world was the Isthmus of Corinth, This narrow neck of land between the Corinthian Gulf and the Saronic Gulf guaranteed its continued commercial prosperity. The transit across this isthmus avoided the long, risky voyage around the rocky, storm-tossed capes at the south of the Peloponnesus. It was literally the crossroad of the world where the north-south trade routes intersected the east-west traffic. It thus became one of the most dominant cultural centers of its day. Materially prosperous, intellectually alert, and morally corrupt. Even in the pagan world, the city was known for its moral corruption. Corinth came to imply licentiousness, Corinthiasithi, or Corinthianize, meant to live in debauchery. In the Apostle Paul's day, Corinth had several nicknames. It was known as Carnal Corinth, Sin City, or Vanity Fair. To Corinthianize a person was to corrupt a person. It was to take him beyond his moral limits. People went to Corinth to be Corinthianized. It was like a rite of passage. There was no greater insult that could be given a woman than to be called a Corinthian. In Bible times, the new Corinth was inhabited by over 400,000 people. Her population was mixed including Greeks, Jews, Italians, and other foreigners. And get this, her transient population was ever-changing. Corinth was a city without foundations or moral roots. 
The city featured new shops, sprawling marketplaces, restored and greatly enlarged temples, fresh water supplies, numerous public buildings, governmental buildings, and an amphitheater that sat over 14,000 people. Recent excavations have uncovered over 33 wine shops located in downtown Corinth. The wine shops featured lofted rooms. Travelers would get drunk with wine and then enticed into these lofts for illicit activity with prostitutes and other partygoers. This is a, uh, a summary that was written by a name of Julie Adenser on a, on a uh, United Kingdom website, but it serves just for a, a summary of the culture that, that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter into. It was a different time and place, and now the church has been around for nearly 2,000 years. But I wonder if someone was to describe Lambton Shores or Ontario or Canada, what would the description say? No matter the description, though, and especially for those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ later in life, or maybe even have yet to, many would be able to relate to the lifestyle uh, and culture that was described for us about the city of Corinth. In such situations, the before and after picture of someone who has come to salvation out of a corrupt lifestyle shows far more contrast than would necessarily be seen in someone who grew up in a Christian home and came to faith early in life. But no matter the context from which we came or come to salvation, the same is true for all believers. We've each been given grace. We've been enriched in Christ as proof of our faith. We've been gifted so that the church as a whole is not lacking in any way. And we are sustained by God to stand before him guiltless through our calling into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for, with that as a lead-in, let's just read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through to verse 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's just pray as we come to God's word. Father, we just ask as as we look into this passage here in 1 Corinthians, that you would feed us and teach us, that you would open the eyes of our heart to understand it. Again, that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of you, that we might understand uh, our position before you and that we might uh, be equipped to walk in faithfulness before you. We pray that your spirit would be at work uh, bringing to light the truths that we can see here. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we dive into the text specifically, Paul does something here uh, and in many of his other letters that's, that's worthy of note. 
Paul's getting ready to present uh, some very serious correction uh, in the life of this church. But instead of just diving into those areas, uh, he begins this letter with some encouragement by demonstrating his thankfulness to God for them in an act of love and care for them. Too often, those uh, in positions of authority or teaching uh, or leaderships, myself included, see an area that needs to be addressed, an area that needs to be corrected, and simply focus on that. Yet we fail to recognize the positive things uh, that are happening in the situation or into the individual's life uh, whom which we're seeking to speak. There are times when correction needs to be immediate, immediate or is urgent, uh, like if your child is about to run into the middle of the road in front of a car. Or even if we looked at Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul felt that uh, the correction needed there was so urgent that he didn't, he didn't offer any encouragement or any positive things at the beginning of the letter. Instead, he dove right into the correction that he was seeking to address there. But oftentimes, uh, correction doesn't happen directly in that moment, and it can wait for a more opportune time. Uh, especially when emotions are running high, uh, it would serve us well to wait until the situation uh, can be addressed rationally. In cases such as these, Paul provides for us an example of how to approach it by first demonstrating love and care and thankfulness for the individual or group, which in turn provides a more receptive platform uh, for the correction that uh, to be heard and to be addressed. A while back in prayer meeting, I was leading through a number of these prayers uh, that Paul encourages his readers with at the beginning of his letters, and uh, there's, there's a common theme that runs through each of them, and it's this attitude of thankfulness that Paul displays. He begins again with that here, and he's thankful for many things, uh, the grace of God given to the members of the church in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's thankful for the evidence of fruit in their lives. He's thankful for... Uh, their, he's thankful for their partnership in the gospel. He's thankful for their, his own salvation that, that God has given to him. And recognizing uh, his unworthiness of the calling to which he's been called, Paul just demonstrates a life uh, of thankfulness and an attitude of thankfulness in, in everything that he does. And the life of the believer is to be permeated by thankfulness. As we begin our journey of faith, God begins to open our eyes and grow our knowledge and understanding of himself, ourselves, life, creation, death, end times, and all the truths that we discover in Scripture. And it should drive us more and more in this direction, even down to the very basics of life itself. Most of you would have heard this little uh, parable or, or joke before, but if you haven't, it serves as a simple illustration of how we truly bring nothing to the table. It goes like this. One day, a group of scientists got together and decided that humanity had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell him that they were done with him. The science, scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point where we can clone people, manipulate atoms, build molecules, fly through space, and do so many other miraculous things. So why don't you just go away and mind your own business from now on? God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. After the scientist was done talking, God said, Very well, how about this? Before I go, let's say we have a human-making contest. 
To which the scientist replied, okay, we can handle that. But God added, we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. The scientist nodded, sure, no problem, and bent down and picked up a handful of dirt. God wagged a finger at him and said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, put that down, go find your own dirt. Kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of a silly little parable and kind of a joke, but it's a great reminder of the fact that we bring nothing to the table. Uh, Everything that we, the very air we breathe, the soil that we grow crops in, uh, the water we drink, the complex functioning of our bodies and everything in the universe was created and spoken into existence by God. The fact that we can even consciously sit here this evening, listening and learning to God's word, should bring us further into an attitude of thankfulness. Scripture is filled with calls for thankfulness. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 1 Chronicles 16, 8. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Specifically here in the opening of the letter to the Corinthian church, Paul expresses his thankfulness to God for the grace extended to the believers in Corinth. He recognizes again that they have brought nothing to the table in their salvation, but simply that God gave it to them. Are we thankful? Not only for the grace that God has extended to each of us who have been saved, but for those around us who God has extended his grace to. Those who can encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, correct us, love us, and pray for us, and so much more. No matter the situation or season of life we find ourselves in, we ought to, like the Apostle Paul, be filled with thankfulness, and it ought to be visible to those around us. Moving on to verse 5, Paul identifies that in every way, meaning the Corinthian church, were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Now when Paul writes this, He already knows the life-changing enrichment that comes with salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows this from his own life. He knows this from lives of so many others that he's had the opportunity to minister to and to, to lead and encourage in the faith. So I don't think that Paul here, especially considering uh, what we read at the beginning and the culture that, uh, that Paul was writing into, I don't think Paul is simply talking here in theory or a head knowledge of what Scripture says uh, that enrichment happens in the life of a believer. I think that, uh, that Paul here really is looking at the church in Corinth, seeing who they were before salvation, and who they've come to, even though he's about to correct a many number of things, their lives have been enriched. There's a visible change from before to after salvation, and I think Paul is recognizing this, that in every way, uh, that they have been enriched. And specifically here, he addresses the fact that they've been enriched in speech and knowledge. Enriched, uh, the Greek word being plutizo, means to cause to abound in or to make rich. Or the definition that I really like is to bring fullness. The Lord Jesus Christ brings fullness in every facet of life 
for those who trust in him as Lord. In my preparation for this, I came across a, a list. Um, I don't know anything about the church, really specifically, or, or this individual who, who created the list. Uh, the church is from down in Oklahoma. The, the man's name is Lawrence Nissent. But it was a list of 82 ways found in Scripture that our lives as believers have been enriched in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go through all of them this evening. Uh, but some of, them, some of them as simple as we've been created in God's image. We are God's child. We are adopted into his family. We are kept in safety wherever we go. We are led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're being taken care of by the Good Shepherd. We are washed in the blood of the Lamb, sanctified. All these things uh, which we can find in Scripture are ways that we've been enriched in the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritually, physically, uh, mentally, in all ways, we've been enriched in Him. I would suggest even uh, to get, I would suggest actually it would be of most value to go through Scripture to find such things and to regularly remind ourselves of them. But even if we could find a list such as this and confirm that this is in, in Scripture, it's valuable to us to go through a list such as, such as this to continue to renew our minds and to gain a deeper and a greater understanding of, of all the ways and all the blessings uh, that we, have, we enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ and ways that uh, we have been enriched in him. In addition to that, gaining that knowledge and that understanding should continue to uh, drive us to that attitude of thankfulness that Paul displays and Paul calls us to in, in letters such as these and other, other areas of Scripture. Additionally, uh, this God-ordained, Christ-supplied enrichment does two things, which Paul states in verse 6 and in the first half, first half of verse 7. Uh, first of all, he conf- it confirms the testimony about Christ and how the gospel brings life-changing power into the life of the believer. By seeing the before and the after, seeing the fruit of the heart change that's taken place in the life of the individual, in the life of this church, it confirms the testimony of the gospel, and the gospel has, has power to change the life of the believer. Enrichment has taken place. And that's why so many areas in Scripture were called to, uh, to test our faith and to, uh, if, if action is not following our professing faith, then we haven't truly believed. The second thing that Paul uh, notes here is that uh, that enrichment that we experience as believers ensures that the church is not lacking in any gift uh, that's needed for the advancement growth and edification for the body of Christ, as he says uh, in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, meaning the church as a whole. Just one brief comment on the second half of verse 7 before moving on. This kind of serves as a transition for Paul, where he highlights the fact that believers are to live with a dual focus of, one, having been the recipients of the grace of God and enriched and gifted in Christ, that our enrichment and our gifts are to equip us for the work that God has called us to here on earth. While two, uh, we wait for the revealing or return of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving us an end game view to help carry us through the good and the challenging times that we may face in this life. 
As we get into verse 8 and 9, we are confronted here with the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints, or my preferred term is the preservation of the saints. And I was actually noticing even a couple of the songs that Matt chose this evening uh, kind of highlight that, that doctrine that it's God who sustains us and keeps us to the end. There are many passages in Scripture where we come across this doctrine, and each time we do come across it, uh, it ought to reinforce our confidence that once we are saved, uh, we are always and forever saved. But just a few things to consider as we consider that doctrine. First, we see demonstrated starting in the first half of verse 7 and into verse 8, that it is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ who sustains believers until the end. This is where the term perseverance of the saints can be misleading to some, as it implies that there is something for us to do to remain until the end. But when reading carefully, we are able to understand that it is not what is being taught here or in other sections of Scripture where we come across this doctrine. John ten twenty seven to 30 reads, and this is Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Notice these verses, the emphasis on who is accomplishing all of these things. Having been given to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Father, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ by his, through his sacrifice, having been sealed by the Holy Spirit, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1, our eternal security is wrapped up not in anything we can do, but simply in the work that has already been completed by, the God, by God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is further confirmed for us in verse 9, which reads, God is faithful. If God were to promise eternal security and then have that not be the case, God would cease to be God and definitely wouldn't be faithful and in turn would mean anyone who had placed their faith in him would have done so in vain. However, because God is faithful, he will fulfill his promise of keeping us as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ and for all of eternity. The second thing to note related to eternal security is that those who attempt to argue against eternal security sometimes use passages like 1 John 2.19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are, not, that they are all not of us. Or Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." With a careful reading of these passages, though, we come to understand that they are actually saying not everyone who claims to be saved is truly saved, which is why we receive, again, instruction in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, 
Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And so those who argue against eternal security use passages such as these, but they fail to read into the context of what's actually being taught here. The third point I just wanted to recognize related to eternal security is that just because we are secure does not give believers the right to go back to living a life of selfishness, debauchery, drunkenness, or whatever fleshly lifestyle we were living prior to salvation. Those who are truly saved have been sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit, who convicts, sanctifies, and enlightens us. Not only that, but we are called to be holy as God is holy. We have been saved from obedience to, from obedience to sin to obedience to righteousness. One of the measures to know if someone truly is saved is to see the change in their life from before to after, which again circles us back to the thankfulness that Paul expresses to the church for the noticeable enrichment seen in their lifestyle, speech, and knowledge. That enrichment serves as confirmation that they and we have truly believed the gospel and are growing in speech and knowledge. As the Spirit carries out his work, whether we grew up in a non-Christian home, came to faith later in life, and experienced any manner of illicit lifestyle, or whether we grew up in a Christian home and came to faith at a young age, the grace that Paul gives thanks to God for here is equal for all believers. Every believer has been enriched in all ways in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer has been gifted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every believer is eternally secure because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who sustains us, proving God's faithfulness. It's my prayer that these truths be both instructive and encouraging to each of us as we seek to walk as the Apostle Paul calls us to in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Father, we're thankful for these words in Scripture. We're thankful that you have extended your grace to those who have believed. We can be thankful for that. We're thankful for the body of Christ around us who we have the opportunity to fellowship with. And as we look around and as we interact with one another, we ought to be able to visibly see the enrichment uh, that you have granted to us in our salvation. We ought to be growing and maturing as we walk day by day in faith. I pray, Father, that that would be true in each of one of our lives as individuals and in life as a church. We're thankful for the ways that you have gifted us as a body of believers and as individuals to work and to continue in service for your kingdom as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we're so thankful, Father, that it is you who sustains us and keeps us and holds us fast. For we know our own weakness. We know that we could never endure in our own strength. But in your power, in your strength that you provide, you will carry us through to the end. We rejoice and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.